Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, rock climbers with disabilities have found a home in Kentucky's Red River Gorge, which offers some pumpy crags. It's basically 20 pull-ups in a row and figure out where I can grab my fingers into a hole or use a palm-down method and try to push with one hand and pull with the other. Climbers have also been working to make the New River Gorge more inclusive. The defining moment is when I can allow my son to open a guidebook and read it. Like, I want to be able to have my kid enjoy the outdoors. And a master craftsman who makes one-of-a-kind whitewater paddles. Remember some advice. Jim told me early on is that paddle making is a vow of poverty. And like most things, he's proven to be correct. (laughs) You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. The mountains of Appalachia are home to some killer rock climbing. And in a lot of cases, the crags and cliffs are fairly easy to get to. That's why certain groups are choosing Appalachia as a climbing destination and a place to return to time and time again. Adaptive sports reporter Emily Chen Newton covers athletes with disabilities. She brings us this story, exploring why climbing festivals are making a home in Appalachia. It's mid-October in Kentucky's Red River Gorge, and the trees are just beginning to take on their autumn colors as rock climbers from around the world flock to the region. The crunching of dried leaves and clanking of metal safety gear creates a type of rock climber's soundtrack. But on this particular weekend, you might also hear ATVs grinding up the trails, bringing wheelchair users to the area. This is the fourth annual Adaptive Climbers Festival, which brings together climbers with disabilities from across North America. Sydney Kessler is one of those climbers. I've been climbing outdoors for now two days. Sitting in the shade of the cliff, Sydney explains she started climbing indoors about a year ago. There she learned some tricks like wearing knee pads to avoid bruises because she doesn't have much feeling or use in her legs from a spinal cord injury. For me, my climbing is... It's basically 20 pull-ups in a row and figure out where I can grab my fingers into a hole or use a palm-down method and try to push with one hand and pull with the other. And every climber at this festival finds their own adaptations and accommodations to their different disabilities, visual, neurological, or limb differences. And the camping and transportation accommodations are just as varied as the climbing styles. The festival planning crew considers all of this when choosing the location. For the Adaptive Climbers Festival, we have such a very specific list of needs. This is Maureen Beck, who goes by Mo. Mo is an internationally decorated climber born without her lower left arm and one of the festival organizers. The Red River Gorge is known simply as the Red to climbers. And while it's renowned as some of the best climbing in the world for its overhanging sandstone cliffs or crags, she says that's not why the festival landed here. As you can imagine, there's a world-class climbing, you know, all over the country that would make, that have excellent world-class festivals, but you can't get a wheelchair to the base of the crag, or you don't have enough cabins for people to sleep in because they can't sleep in tents because of their medical conditions. And so for us, the red fit this very narrow need of accessible crags, accessible lodging and camping, and then a community that can support us because we've had this festival in two other locations and the support we have gotten from the local climbers, local business owners here is unparalleled to any place we've had this. One of those local businesses is the Lagolinda's Hideaway Campground where the festival lodging is based. The owners here at Lagolinda's are going above and beyond to retrofit their bathrooms to meet ADA compliance. They're adding ramps to all of their cabins and buildings. They off-the-cuff booked a band for Saturday night because they want everybody to have a good time. Larry and Elaine Fredrickson run Lagolinda's Hideaway. They've added grab bars to the shared bathrooms and ensured the showers are large enough for wheelchairs and other mobility aids. The couple sat down with me before the event kicked off, and Elaine said why they do it is simple. Once you sit up and look at the sky at night and you see those stars, it's just beautiful and peaceful. Nobody should be denied that. Nobody. 
Another major part of the community system for the festival is the Mere Valley Nature Preserve and Climbing Area, where the adaptive athletes climb and teach their clinics. Like at the campground, ramps and railings were added for the event. Zane Paff is a local search and rescue volunteer and one of the Valley's caretakers. He says Mere Valley and two search and rescue crews from surrounding counties support the festival with transportation in ATV buggies. The Lee County will bring in um, their buggy, and the Wolf County will bring in their buggy, which these are just razors, but we call them our rescue buggies. And then it's just a day of playing taxi and having fun. He says riding in an ATV was new for most of the climbers last year. I mean, they were joking around, having a blast, and psyching me up, and just none of them been in an ATV, so I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> Had a little bit of fun with it, but made sure we were being safe, too. And Mere Valley doesn't allow any electric or motorized vehicles except for this event, actually. And we're only using it for, like, anybody in a wheelchair, if they're missing a limb, can't get themselves to Bruce Brothers, we'll, we'll drop them right off at the climb that they want to go up. I catch up with Sydney after she's finished one of those climbing routes, one of the many she's done with the help of Zane and his ATV. She tells me this sport reminds her of her recovery. When you go on a wall, you don't exactly know what's ahead, and you just kind of figure it out as you go, and then you eventually make it to the top. So I feel like it shows you how to do hard things, and it gives you the confidence to believe that you can continue to do hard things, even if you don't really know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Something else she learned she could do this weekend was camping. I was like... I don't know how I'm going to sleep in a tent and like pressure. So, like, there's just a lot of things that you have to think about when you have a disability that. Like pressure points? Pressure points, yeah, pressure points, or just getting in and out of a tent, like transferring from a wheelchair to a tent. I didn't know how exactly that would work, but I went straight from the chair down to the tent floor, so. Oh, good. So you could get your chair into the tent? Yeah. Okay. Well, it was like in the rain, mm. in, underneath the rain. Oh, the rain fly. Rain fly, yeah. <laughs> See, I don't know any of the terms. <laughs> she says it's the support of her adaptive family that makes it possible. Even just a, m- a couple minutes ago, I was at the top. My arms were burning. I had to give it a little shakeout. And, and I, you listen to it when you're up on the wall. You listen to all the people behind you cheering you on. And it's a, it's a truly supportive community. It's hard to find that, that supportive community that don't treat you in a certain way because of your disability, but they're there to support you and however they can to help you do what you want to do. It's literally like a mindset of whatever it takes to get you to where you want to go, that you have the people power to do it. And the people power is exactly what Mo emphasizes too. Much of the climbable land in the red and throughout Appalachia is owned by individual people or private organizations. This is in contrast to the western United States, where many climbing areas fall under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Land Management or other public land governance. In fact, nearly 60% of all climbing in the U.S. is on federally managed land, making the red and other such areas in and around Appalachia unique. The folks who run Mere Valley can reserve cliffs for special groups because they own the land. There was a quick conversation, Mo says, when they asked to use the area for the festival. They were more than willing to shut down crags for us. One of them was one of the most popular crags in the entire gorge. And that's not the only part of the Appalachian landscape that makes it a good fit for this event. Most of even the walking paths here are, are dirt and soft and gentle. They're not like huge rocky scree things. And... When you stop to think about it, so many of them are on these old or even currently used oil roads um, or logging roads, and it's just gentle. Climbing areas throughout Appalachia feature these access roads that are currently used by or left by extractive industries like timber, natural gas, and oil. With trails originally forged as logging or oil access roads, they're much wider, more even, and more accessible than what you get at other climbing destinations. Many of the trails in Mere Valley are modified logging cuts, making them great for ATVs. You might not be able to follow an access road all the way to the base of a climb, but you can get pretty dang close. This is the case for one of the Red's most famous areas, the Motherlode. 
So like we were able to bring one of our wheelchair athletes uh, to the mother load last year. And most of the time he was still in his chair. And that's always a big goal with folks who use chairs is to keep them in it. A little bit, he had to get backpacked and carried. Um, but it's, it's like a huge dignity and safety thing. Like the more they can be in their chair, the better for that human. Um, and yeah, for the mother load, it was like 80% of the time he was in that chair. And, you know, not, not all of our athletes, I think when people think disabled athletes, they think a lot of wheelchairs, but we have a lot of folks with walkers or who use um, side sticks or who just use trekking poles or, you know, we have a lot of athletes whose like, legs work fine, but maybe they can't carry a pack that far. Or... And no matter a person's disability, they're welcomed as part of the family. One big family reunion is something I've heard over and over again while reporting on this event for two years now. So it makes sense that the small family-run businesses are such an integral part of the gathering. Miguel's Pizza is one of the most well-known local businesses and a staple of the festival lunches. Zane says Miguel's is emblematic of the festival vibe. It's like you see over at Miguel's, it's just like families running businesses and the even Lago Linda's is family-owned and operated. So like you're just getting a big warm welcome when you come down here. But Kentucky's Red River Gorge isn't the only Appalachian climbing destination serving as a home base for niche festivals. Homa Climbtastic is the largest queer-friendly climbing gathering in the world, and for over a decade, they've called Fayetteville, West Virginia, their home, climbing in the New River Gorge. I spoke with one of the organizers, Jay Dempsey, over the phone about how the town shows their support. They're putting together window displays full of color for us and to see pride flags all over town that almost every business it's it's it, it it can make you cry yeah he says Fayetteville being a small town facilitates climbers and locals actually connecting for example when picking out a place for dinner you're going to choose from one of you know 10 restaurants probably a locally owned family restaurant you're going to feel more connected to the town where you're staying you're going to feel that reason why all the locals choose to live there for nearly the whole life of the festival, Homo Climbtastic has been hosted at the Whitewater Guide Company and Campground, Cantrell's Ultimate Rafting. Owner Nancy Cantrell spoke with me over the phone in between hopping on reservation calls. I don't have anybody else on the phones this time of year because we're getting ready to shut her down. Cantrell's is the only family-owned and operated raft guide company in West Virginia. Nancy and her husband Richie are West by God born and raised, and they've seen the shift in the economy in Fayetteville over the years spurred on by groups of rafters and climbers. We grew up here. We were raised, you know, grew up in Hinton an hour and 15 minutes south. And of course, rural West Virginia and southern West Virginia is not greatest for employment anymore because we've lost the coal industry. So high priced jobs aren't there. Most of us are dependent on the tourist industry, unless you're a school teacher, pretty much. So any type of gathering like this and events and large number of people that come in really helps that economy. But the homoclimatastics, they go out, they eat at several of the different local eateries. They shop in the outfitter stores for equipment. I mean, they bring a lot of additional income into the area that helps sponsor jobs that people really need in this area. Just like how the folks who run the campground in Kentucky installed ramps and grab bars for their campers' safety, Nancy also takes precautions to make sure everyone at the queer-friendly event is safe while at Cantrell's. Now, I close my campus when they come. It is their campus. This is their home while they're here. you got a common bathhouse. I don't have to worry that there's any kind of altercation going on or issue or anything like that. It's just a nice, safe environment for them. The support and protection is certainly felt by the climbers. Here's Jay Dempsey again. In a world where there is a difference between accepting and welcoming, they are incredibly welcoming. It's warm. Uh, they learn everyone's name. It's it's just a great place to kind of call home for a weekend. Jason Traylor is another member of the Homo Climbtastic crew. Talking over a video call, he said that Fayetteville feels like a safe location because it's rural but not totally isolated. Having a place that's not remote allows you to have more like safety protocols and things like that nature um because that's like a huge thing with any like queer event to be able to like get help that we may need both the adaptive and queer climbing communities have within them even more diversity than their niche names suggest and it's important to say here that many climbers of color within these communities and beyond don't always feel at home in Appalachian climbing destinations. 
Jason, who's black, says he's always felt safe and welcomed at Homo Climtastic, but... And I've talked to, like, other um, BIPOC people when they go in these areas. They just, you know, they feel, you know, just the stares, even if they're not, like, judgmental stares. It's just the stares, but, like, who's to say what they mean? Back in Kentucky, festival goers sit on a long wooden bench waiting to climb. Karima Batts is a black adaptive climber waiting for her turn. And she says there's safety in numbers. Oh, I feel safe right here with my homies. I feel great. But when I'm on my way here, no. <laughs> like, no. And like, would you ever come to the red, like, on your own? No. It was just like... Like, I gotta be with a, a safe group of some sort, something. It's only in recent years that conversations about race and inclusion have been embraced by climbing culture as a whole. Things happening in 2020 allowed me to be a little bit more open about how I've always felt like the last 12 years, because I've always been the black paraclimber all the time. <laughs> I enjoy being in a space. I enjoy my community overall. But there's, there are certain instances when I've traveled or, you know, kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in. There are some initiatives within the climbing community at large to do things like change the names of climbing routes originally using racist or bigoted terms. Karima has been part of some of these efforts. You're going to make everyone feel safe? Impossible. But can you improve it? Yes. Jason from Homo Climbtastic says the name changes benefit everyone, not just select groups of people. I think it makes it more welcoming as like not just like for individuals, but also like for the mainstream family, you know, and like. You know, I just like to understand we as human beings evolve. And so that means if we as human beings evolve, that means our communities must evolve with it. Nancy Cantrell has been around long enough to see her community of Fayetteville, West Virginia evolve because, she says, of the influence of those who came originally for the white water and the rocks. A lot of those initial outdoor adventurers that came into the area to enjoy the area ended up moving here. They're adults now. Some of them are in their 60s, you know. So their kids have came up through the school system and now their kids have got kids in the school system. And they certainly demonstrated their commitment to the area and proven it. And I think the locals that actually were born here see that and respect that and you know it's a very blended eclectic little community for southern west virginia it's an anomaly and it's been because of the outdoor adventure community that that has how it's evolved the outdoor adventure economy in kentucky's red river gorge isn't quite as mature as fayetteville's but it's heading in that direction with new signs for kayak and cabin rentals popping up each year over a couple slices of a legendary pizza at Miguel's, I talk with John May. He's chief of the Wolf County Search and Rescue, which provides ATVs for the Adaptive Festival. We're at one of the outside tables, every one of them packed. There's a basketball court behind us, and John waves to a cliff line in the distance. Used to be a pasture up there with cattle roaming, and now you might see a cabin. <laughs> you still see the pastures, too, you know. Some people don't want to give that up, but, but it's given the local community, you know, a way to, you know, maybe live a little better life, you know. By, a lot of my friends now are building cabins. You know, we built a couple of cabins, and, you know, and it's a... Uh, it's good. It's a good business. So John has lived here his whole life, and he says that climbing is bringing a new perspective about the value of the land in the area. Because we mainly have farmers and people that work in coal, coal industry, and cliff lines were a, a way cattle would fall off and die. You know, and now it's like, what? You know, I can build a cabin on that, and, I, you know, I can rent that cabin out. You know, so I think people are starting to see the opportunity in it. Uh, not just if you own a business and selling food, but maybe you're a guide, you know, and you can go out and make a good living doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really changed, you know, how people look at some of the property that they own for generations, and now they're kind of making money off of it instead of just raising farm animals. <laughs> the change in perspective goes both ways, though. Mo, the adaptive festival organizer, has climbed all over the world, and she says her opinion of Kentucky changed after actually spending time here. Even when I had heard of the Red River Gorge, I was like, ugh, Kentucky. Like, I'll never love Kentucky. Like, what's Kentucky? And now I'm like, oh, my God, can I buy a house in Kentucky, please? It's one of my favorite places. Like, um, climbing is amazing like that, though. This activity, it's this hobby, it's this passion that just lets you see the world through a different lens, not only because you're literally on a cliff 100 feet up, but because you're just experiencing places that you would never think about otherwise. And wanting to become even more involved, Mo says they plan to add a community service project to the festival. Because, like, I think so many people in our community yeah, are used to being served. And I think people are used to serving us. <laughs> and I would love to flip that around and be like, no, we can also be a part of this community and give service back to it. 
Homo Climbtastic has their own way of giving back. They raise money with their annual drag show for local causes. Last year, the money was given to a safe house for queer youth in Morgantown, West Virginia. And efforts like these are how they've become part of the eclectic community in Fayetteville. Nancy says they're like family. We just fell in love with them, and it is like a reunion for us now. This is just how Larry and Elaine talk about the adaptive climbers who come to their campground. It's the last night of the gathering, and they heard two climbers who met at the Kentucky Festival last year wanted to get married this year. So they're pulling out all the stops. Unprompted, they arrange for a bluegrass band and a hairdresser for the bride. I catch Elaine bringing candles and mason jars to her crew working on the ceremony archway. I love what you did here. So beautiful. She tells me the archway and homemade cake are decorated with flowers from the surrounding woods. They're working with natural flowers and lights all from this area and we do have some that is um, plastic but majority are from it's October October. (laughs) correct they're busy getting ready but she gives me a quick tour of the party supplies inside we got lights we got decorations we have tablecloths we have a champagne for them it will be on ice but it's in the fridge right now We have a guest book, which I think is the most important thing. So they can go back and see who has attended their wedding. (laughs) The ceremony was beautiful. And as the night went on, the blended community that's forming here was on full display. The wooden slats of the dance floor vibrated with bluegrass tunes and rock climbers, some in wheelchairs, some with prosthetics, all dancing. Sydney says this was an important moment for her. Like, usually if I'm dancing, I'm with people that are, like, jumping, and that's great, but I'm usually the only chair user. And so the fact that I'm dancing with other chair users and people that maybe they don't have your exact circumstance, but they have something, or they're here for some reason, um, there's literally no other community like it. Mo says that their community service next year could be an accessible trail project or trash cleanup, but no matter what, they plan on calling this place home for a while. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Chen Newton, in the red. Coming up, in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement helped inspire an effort to remove racist and sexist climbing route names from a New River Gorge guidebook. The defining moment is when I can allow my son to open a guidebook and read it. Like, I want to be able to have my kid enjoy the outdoors. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu. Twenty twenty was a historic year. Not only was there the COVID nineteen pandemic, but that same year. Brianna Taylor and George Floyd were killed by police officers. Their deaths became flashpoints for the Black Lives Matter movement, which spread to communities across the U.S., big and small. Millions participated in protests, and there was a lot of soul-searching about racism ingrained in every level of society, including the world of rock climbing. In West Virginia, one of the most popular climbing destinations is the New River Gorge, To this day, advanced rock climbers continue to pioneer new climbing routes there. The first people to climb these new routes are called First Ascensionists, and they get the privilege of naming the routes. But what happens when dozens of those route names are plainly and clearly offensive? In 2020, Zach Harold reported a story at the New River Gorge about a father who wanted to make the rock climbing he loved more inclusive for his son. I'm standing at the base of a gargantuan rock formation in West Virginia's New River Gorge. You can hear the water coming down the mountainside, rushing toward the river below. This rock, known as the Hole, shoots hundreds of feet overhead, curving as it goes to form an imposing-looking overhang. 
A man is powering his way up this craggy face, and he's moving fast, finding handholds here and footholds there. The only thing protecting him from falling on the jagged boulders below are some rope, some carabiners clipped into metal anchors that have been drilled into the rock, and his partner, who's standing on solid ground, holding one end of the rope. The climber works his way higher and higher, and then all of a sudden, he comes swooping down toward the ground. Climber DJ Grant drove from Pittsburgh to the New River Gorge, as he does nearly every weekend during the warm months. Earlier that morning, as I waited for him to get breakfast, DJ told me how he discovered climbing. It was actually because I was fighting depression, and I went to the gym, and I loved it since. Even now, like if I'm having a bad week or a bad day, like I go climbing, and it, it helps me a lot. It's a puzzle. Like you have, you have to challenge yourself into solving a puzzle not based on your strength, but on technique and your own ingenuity. So as you are, it's physically active, but it's also mentally stimulating. Recently, DJ has become obsessed with solving one particular puzzle, the climbing route known as Blood Raid. Like, for me, I don't like failure, and every time I get on this wall, I fail. I'm also afraid of heights, so it's me fighting the fear, me fighting the fact that I'm gonna fail. It's everything that I hate climbing embodies, and I love that. Blood Raid was established and named back in the 1980s by climber Doug Reed. That's how it works in the climbing world. Develop a route, and it's yours to name. But this tradition has come under scrutiny of late. If you climb a route for the very first time, you traditionally get to name it. It is just tradition, it's not a right. And that's what we're, we're arguing about right now, is that just because you climbed it first and you decide to be juvenile and name it something racist, you don't get to say you're not racist or something like that, just change it. The argument DJ's talking about started in May. He came down to the gorge with some climbing buddies to celebrate his birthday. Yeah, uh, it was a Memorial Day weekend. A buddy of mine and both of our partners, Natalie and Alexis, we were climbing at this route, this wall, and there was a route called Tigger. Yeah, it had another Tigger in the morgue and hard pipe hitting Tiggers, uh, which are both plays on the N-word, and like I was really offended by it. I was really taken like it. It was the first time that I realized that something like a name could ruin my entire day. Like I didn't want to go anywhere close to that wall. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to look at it. It was just like, it was so offensive and so hurtful. So like it just it ruined my day. It, ruined, it almost ruined my entire trip. DJ is black. And these offensive names he's referencing live in a two-volume guidebook called New River Rock, which has directions and descriptions of 3,000 climbing routes in the gorge. And it turns out nearly 100 have similarly offensive names. There are climbing routes with names like Tar Baby and Slave Fingers. There's a whole series of climbs named for the racist character Sambo, like Sambo Goes to Disneyland, and the list goes on and on and on. So here's a cool one. Cool Crocs Climbing with all Ks. Yeah. DJ says these names have upset him for years, but until recently he felt powerless to do anything about it. Then two important things changed. For one, his 10-year-old son started climbing with him. The defining moment is when I can allow my son to open a guidebook and read it and not be worried about him asking me questions. Of what's, what's the tar baby? What's sleigh fingers? Cool Clark's climbing. Hey, Daddy, there's all Ks. Is that KKK? Like, I don't want to have those conversations. Like, I want to be able to have my kid enjoy the outdoors. And the other thing that changed for DJ? There were protesters clashing with police and stopping traffic in Minneapolis last night, this after the death of George Floyd. Four police officers have now been fired, but outrage spilled into the streets after Floyd, a black man, died in police custody on Monday night. There was video widely shared on social media showing a police officer using his knee to pin Floyd's neck to the ground for several minutes. Eventually, conversations about police brutality shifted to include the wider problem of racism in America. 
The world of rock climbing began its own conversations because no matter where you go from the Red River Gorge of Kentucky to Ten Sleep Canyon in Wyoming, racist route names are a problem. DJ and his partner reached out to the New River Alliance of Climbers, better known as NRAC, an advocacy group that represents climbers' interest in the gorge. They want the group to acknowledge the racism that exists in climbing culture. At first, they got no response. But after a few weeks, NRAC's board reached out and set up a Zoom call with DJ and other climbers of color. They wanted to discuss how to make rock climbing in the gorge more diverse. The issue of names came up pretty quickly. I think it, it could start with the root names. You know, from coming from out of town to a climbing area, looking at that guidebook, um, it's, it's damn near impossible to climb a route called the racist and then go and camp in the middle of the woods and not feel like you're going to get lynched when you go to sleep. That's Ronnie Black, a black climber in Vermont who has climbed in the gorge for years. DJ was also on the call and stressed that NRAC should facilitate getting the names changed. You guys know each other, and like I don't think that we as a marginalized community should be should have to reach out to the first ascensionists and say, hey, we don't like this. Can you please change it? We think that NRAC should have taken the the stand should have been the liaison between us and the first ascensionist and us in the community to say, hey, we think you should change this. Basically, DJ and his friends are asking the climbing organization to reach out to the people who named these routes and have them change the names, which is more complicated than it sounds because some of these routes have been around for over 30 years and their creators are scattered all over the country. And what if they don't want to change the name? In that case, NRAC might just rename it for them. Gene Kistler, NRAC board president, liked the idea. You know, I completely agree with you. When I look at climbing um, and how much has changed, when I started climbing for years, there were not even women climbing. And today it's so different, and we're not obligated to preserve any of that because really it's the rock climbing that matters. And I don't think anybody here have an issue. I mean, there's been some, there's been some issue with the name changes and preserving history and people are struggling, but I think all that's process. And the fact of the matter is changing the names is a really simple lift compared to what's next. NRAC quickly formed a Justice, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, JEDI for short. And they started trying to figure out how many names needed to be changed. Members of the committee went through the guidebook page by page. They ended up with a list of 92 route names that ridicule some type of minority group. Black people, Asian people, LGBT folks, people living with disabilities, there are all kinds that are offensive to women. A lot of the names we can't even say on the radio. There's a deadline to get this work done, too. A new edition of the Godbook's second volume is going to press this fall. After that, it'll likely be a long time before another edition is printed. So if NRAC doesn't get the names in that volume changed quickly, they'll sit on bookshelves for years to come. Mikey Williams compiled the first comprehensive New River Gorge climbing guidebook back in 2008. He's preparing the new edition, too. He also used to be a member of the NRAC board until he resigned a few months ago, partially because he says the organization shouldn't be wading into what he sees as social justice issues. You know, as the guidebook author, it made sense to recuse myself from from dealing with the actual what are we going to name and what are we going to rename. But you know, then I look at this this list and I'm like, man, it's frustrating. Any of the, any of the names that had a reference to the N word, for sure, you're like, okay, that was bad. Or the cool crux climbing, all spelled with K's. You're like, come on, man. All right, how could we not have seen this? Let's get the KKK stuff out of the book. But there are other names that Mikey doesn't see as offensive, including some of the routes he personally named. So here's the, the route description for the Route Aryan Race. A sustained pump race up reflective white rock that's steeper than a Hitler salute. Probably not in the best taste, um, you know, but to me, I, I had no idea that that would be, I, I don't know the word for it. Offensive isn't the word for it. Um, I never thought that that would be taken as a celebration of white supremacy. You know, I'm certainly not a white supremacist. You know, I've, I've got no love for Hitler <laughs> at all, you know? Uh, being able to use that description is such a colorful, accurate description of the route. 
Mikey says the way he sees it, the route name Aryan Race pokes fun at the Third Reich. It's only when the name is taken out of context that it becomes offensive. And he's not the only one that feels this way. Several climbers have pushed back on NRAC's renaming efforts because they say the original climbers weren't really trying to be racist or offensive. But DJ and other climbers advocating for name changes point out that context doesn't appear anywhere in the books. I don't get the context. The context isn't written in the book, so I don't get the context. So, like, why are you defending the context of it when, when for 20 years I wasn't given the context? It's only after I voice my opinion and my concerns about it, you tell me that it's not racist because it was done in such a way. The climbers in Rack has approached so far see things DJ's way. They've agreed to change the names. Even Mikey's trying to decide what he'll rename Aryan Race. Now I realize that while I was laughing, not everybody was laughing, you know? For his part, DJ says he's pleased with the progress that NRAC has made with the name changes so far. But the damage is already done. Some routes are just going to bring up bad memories, even once they're called something else. A lot of these routes I will never get back on because I know the backstory of it. So, like any of the ticket routes, I will... I refuse to climb ever because of the backstory on it. But I would love for someone, I would love for my child to not know the name of it and get on it and enjoy it. I'd love for someone from out of town to come on with the new guidebook, with the new name and get on and climb and say, this is an amazing route. I really, I really admire the first receptor for putting this up, for bolting it, for making it what it is. But for me, I'm still hurt by it. I'm still hurt by the fact that of what it was. I'm still offended by it but I hope the next person who gets on it is not offended by it. That's all I'm hoping for, too. Like, the next person can enjoy it more than I can ever enjoy it. After that story aired in October of 2020, Zach kept in touch with DJ Grant. He spoke with Grant in 2021 and sent this update. DJ, for those that might not have heard the first story, can you talk to us a little bit about the issues that arose in the New River Gorge climbing community last year? So last year, um, a group of climbers and myself were really upset about the names that were in the New River Guidebook. Some of the names were racist, misogynistic, homophobic, sexist, and just downright offensive. And so we reached out to NRAC, the New River Alliance of Climbers, to ask them if they could fix it. And they were mostly on board with helping us fix it. So once you had brought up this issue to them, a procedure was created to go about having these names changed. Can you describe what that process was? We reached out to the community. We asked the community, we usually ask the demographic that we thought would be offended by these names. And whenever consensus was drawn that, hey, these names were offensive, we brought it on the table. We reached out to the first ascensionists and asked them if they were willing to change the names. I remember you explaining that to me for the first story, how in the rock climbing community, it's traditionally been the first person to successfully climb out the first ascensionist in the lingo, uh, who's been allowed to name the routes. And it's so interesting to me that you guys went to them first, gave them first dibs at renaming these routes, because one, it preserves the legacy of these folks, and two, it allows them to right the wrongs that they created by naming these routes offensive things. So how did it go? Did the first ascensionists agree to change the names? Um, we got all the names we wanted to get changed, changed. Yeah. It was a success. That is amazing. Um, because there are so many areas of our culture where, you know, a a minority group of people says, this is offensive. This brings up bad things for me and I don't like it. And so many times the other side is so entrenched in tradition or whatever that they just refuse to change. And here, even the people that were the old guard, you know, the people that were there in the beginning, they were willing to say, okay, I see what you mean. Let's move forward. They were more willing to help us when we explained that you're not racist. We understand that times have changed, that you're, um, you're helping us, and your legacy will stay there. 
If you pick up the book and, and if somebody's coming to this and they don't know any of this backstory, is there anything that would let them know the work that you and others there at NRAC put into removing these uh, offensive names? There is a excerpt in the book that says what we did and why we did it. It's just um, telling the next generation that we had these hard conversations so you didn't have to. We we fought for change. Change wasn't a right. It was something that we fought for. It was something that we did for you. It was something that we did because we love you. Have there been other changes to the guidebook that makes it more inclusive? Yeah, that's the best part. Not only have, have the names been changed, but now there's more representation. There's pictures of black and brown climbers. There's pictures of female climbers. There's pictures of not only white climbers, but Asian, black, brown, like all shapes and sizes on the walls. It's no longer a white man's book. It's everybody's book. It's everyone's sport. Have you got your copy yet? I have my copies, yes. What was that experience like flipping through for the first time? It honestly, the book was so light because it was free of so much hate, like no pain, no whatever. Like, I teared up because knowing that we made significant change, like no other person will feel the pain that we felt. There are two volumes to the New River Climbing Guide. This was volume two. Are you guys working on volume one now? I assume there are names in that volume that also probably merit changing. Um, Volume one, we have reached out to a lot of first ascensionists. A lot of the first ascensionists are on board with the name changes as well. Do you have any idea when the first edition might go back to press? It's going to be a while unless the public does a a push for a new reprint, but let's not do that because it'll put a lot of pressure on us to do a lot of work. Those tight deadlines are are brutal. I understand. DJ, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you so much for the work you and the rest of uh, NRAC are are doing to make the Gorge a more uh, inclusive and, and welcoming place. On behalf of Interact, thank you so much. That was DJ Grant, one of the rock climbers who pushed to change offensive route names in West Virginia's New River Gorge. He spoke with reporter Zach Harold in 2020 and 2021. When Zach first interviewed him, Grant said he didn't think he'd ever be able to climb the offensively named routes, even if they were renamed. It'd be too painful. But now... Grant says that since then, he's actually climbed some of the renamed routes. He hopes future climbers of color will also fall in love with the New River Gorge. Appalachia has several huge rivers, the New River, the Yakagani, the Pigeon, so it's no surprise whitewater paddling is popular across the region. But it wasn't all that long ago that modern paddlers first started exploring these rivers, designing their own gear, and even building their own paddles. Some of those DIY paddle makers became master crafters, and their work is in high demand. Folkways reporter Claire Hazlett has more. It's a cloudy day on the New River. I'm in a canoe, pulling a wooden paddle through the water. The lyrics of a love song are stamped on the glossy blade. Oh, this is so cute. Is this the one you made for your wife? Yep. The paddle's maker is John Rue. He's alongside me in a bright blue kayak. It's it's a Dylan song that says, I got a bird that whistles, I got a bird that sings, I got a bird that whistles. I got a bird that sings, but if I ain't got Rachel, 
life don't mean nothing. <laughs> the paddle is striped with different kinds of wood. It's lighter than I expected, but sturdy too. It can withstand white water. Wooden paddles aren't all that common in whitewater kayaking and rafting. When I was a raft guide for a summer, I'd occasionally see the flash of a wooden paddle on the water. And I'd always think, man, that is a good-looking paddle. It was always the best paddlers who used them. And each paddle had its own story. This section of the New River isn't far from John's home in Blacksburg, Virginia. He runs his own business there, out of his basement. Shade tree paddles. Yeah, this is, this is the paddle rack. This one here, this is one of the first paddles I ever made. I used it maybe once because it was it's not funky. very good. It's funky. Yes, that is a polite way to describe it. John started making paddles after studying sculpture and ceramics in college. I felt like I had a lot of, a very wide pool of skill, but it was a very shallow pool. He says he wanted to focus on one skill and become an expert at it. He chose paddle making because of his love for whitewater kayaking. It's taken him about 10 years to master. Because it's not easy. It's a slow, complex process that requires specific high-quality wood. You know, you can't go to the builder supply and buy any old thing. Inuits are credited with inventing what we know as the kayak and the double-faced paddle. But these designs weren't made for whitewater, and for centuries, many rivers were largely deemed unnavigable. But with the technology that emerged from World War II, like fiberglass and synthetic rubber, adventurers took to the rivers, learning to canoe, raft, and kayak on whitewater. People had to make their own gear. Uh, People had to make their own kayaks. And then there would be people who would build paddles. People like Keith Backland. In all of my conversations with different paddle makers, I kept hearing Keith's name. They say he revolutionized wooden paddle making. His paddles were made for whitewater, and they were so special, they were known by his last name. They were these prized possessions, you know, and you'd say, hey, can I try your paddle? And they'd say, heck no, that's my backland. (laughs) Nobody touches my backland except for me, (laughs) you know. Keith died soon after John started getting into paddle making. But his legacy was carried on by the apprentices he took on during his career, starting with Jim Snyder. The, the way that I build a paddle is directly related to how Jim and Keith build paddles. John would study Jim's paddles and email him with questions about both the building process and the business side of things. One of the things that uh, Jim told me early on is that paddle making is a vow of poverty and... Uh, And like most things, he has proven to be correct. (laughs) John sells his paddles for close to $600. And while that might seem like a good chunk of change, when you consider the weeks and sometimes months of labor involved... I'd be hard-pressed to be able to go full-time. John works at a wood shop to support his family and just makes paddles on the side. But Jim Snyder has been a full-time paddle maker for about 47 years, I called him up at his home in Preston County, West Virginia, to ask him about it. You know, having real financial support for myself would have been a smart thing, but I just wanted to play a lot. (laughs) And I didn't care if I was poor and hardly had enough firewood. He told me it hasn't been a financially stable career, but it's been fulfilling. If you look at it from my perspective, there was actually the danger of getting a job that would pull me into some you know, career track that I didn't really want to be in because I really wanted to be a paddle maker. Jim says making paddles is a transformational process. Turning a tree in the ground into a paddle in the water is like bringing the wood back to life. You know, the wood, when it's cut down and stored, is like it goes to sleep. Then when it's finally built into a paddle and reduced to being a paddle and used on the river, it thinks the wind is still blowing. <laughs> And the paddles he makes are built to last a lifetime. Like, I simply cannot paddle without a Jim Sider paddle. It's like my lucky charm. That's Christine Vogler from Asheville, North Carolina. Once I started kayaking, my shoulder would just dislocate all the time. Um, So I would reach for, like, the handle of a door and my arm would pop out a socket. She tried physical therapy and eventually had surgery. But she kept having pain until she tried one of Jim Snyder's paddles. I mean, I just was able to paddle without pain. It was revolutionary for me. 
Paddlers say wooden paddles aren't as stiff as the ones off the shelf, making them more gentle on the body. Christine sees it this way. For some reason, it feels like you're more part of the water, working with the water, moving with it. Paddling with a wooden paddle feels more spiritual somehow. There aren't many custom paddle makers in the region, like John Rue and Jim Snyder, and there's high demand. John has already started a wait list for next year, and Jim has stopped taking any new orders until things slow down. Jim says it's a supply issue. He's the supply. The supply's not meeting the demand, and the supply doesn't want to. He says he's not interested in scaling up. He'd rather spend his time on the river. And in the summer, almost every day, I work half a day and go play half a day. And that works just fine. Back in Blacksburg, John chips away at a paddle, slowly carving it with hand tools. I'm trying to come to grips with the fact that, like, there's significantly more efficient ways to do this, but this is kind of how I like to do it, so I think I'm just going to keep doing it that way, because otherwise it wouldn't be so much fun then. He's always experimenting with new designs and trying them out on the water. I ask him if it's ever frustrating. He says no. If I did it right the first time, then I wouldn't have to build any more, I guess. You know? <laughs> John says the craft has also kept him focused on being on the water. I get a little jealous of the paddles that they're, they get to go out more than I do. I got a bird that whistles. I got a bird that sings. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Claire Heaslett. Claire reported that story in 2021. Shade Tree Paddles is still taking orders for new paddles. They make great holiday gifts for the river rats in your life. But you might want to plan ahead for next Christmas. That type of craftsmanship takes a while. Claire's story was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. For more Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Sturgeon Creek, Anthony Vega, Oakfield, The DeLorean, Biba DuPont, Marissa Anderson, Tyler Childers, Jerry Douglas, and John Blissard. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.